Hey guys, Jordan Harbinger here, former host of The Art of Charm and current host of The Jordan Harbinger Show, because I'm really creative with naming my new show, apparently. And now, I'm helping out a good friend of mine, Peter Huseth, with his podcast, Millennial Highway. You're listening to Millennial Highway. This is the podcast of your generation. You're on the highway of life, so why not join us in the fast lane? Hey guys, Peter Huseth here. If you haven't checked out the Jordan Harpenter Show, I highly recommend it. Um, in today's episode with John Denunzio, um, we talk about his background from going to Northwestern, uh, getting a degree in engineering, to being a pilot, to going into sales, and we also hint on some leadership. So definitely a jam-packed episode, a lot of great stuff in here, so check it out. Enjoy. All right, we're recording. I'm sitting here with John Denunzio, a global technology sales and marketing executive with deep sales and leadership experience who outthinks and outworks the competition to deliver sustainable multi-million dollar growth, not to mention he's a retired U.S. Air Force captain and commander. John, how you doing? Well, great, Peter. That sounds pretty good on paper. <laughs> hope I can live up to that during our conversation this afternoon. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> and I, I, I have faith you will. Um, so kind of summarizing what I just said, if you could describe what you do in one sentence, what would it be? Oh, well, for the last several years, I've uh, led sales, marketing and operations for a series of, uh, large technology companies. I'm currently employed by, uh, Hewlett Packard. And then I spent three years running a business at Samsung. So I, uh, employ some of the things you've said, um, to help, uh, drive, uh, top line business and profit margin for the technology products we sell to uh, uh, global corporate customers as well as uh, global service providers like an AT&T or Verizon. Very cool, very cool. Um, so you got your, uh, your undergrad uh, Bachelor's of Science of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science at Northwestern, which is very impressive. Um, what made you wanna get into a more business uh, oriented environment? Um, well, you know, I'm, that was a long time ago and my father encouraged me to, uh, get an engineering degree and the air force strongly encouraged an engineering degree, uh, in order to have technical skills as well as, uh, develop a problem solving, um, empirical mindset to be data driven and, and, and think a little differently. So being able to break a problem down into your constituents' parts, its components, if you will, and then uh, understand each of them. That's how you solve a math problem or an engineering problem. And I find it's a good way to run a business. So um, I ended up getting an Air Force scholarship to uh, college. I actually had gotten Air Force, Army, and Navy scholarships. And I also had an opportunity to go to the Air Force Academy, but I had, no one in my family had been in the military. So I was a little nervous about going to the military academy and I uh, thought the Air Force would be cool. But the Air Force sort of said that you had to major in engineering. So um, the Navy and the Army didn't feel quite the same way. The Air Force is sort of a more technical arm. You're more a technology implementer, uh, regardless of what you do as an officer in the Air Force. So that's sort of what drove me down the engineering path. However, um, you know, I was a pilot in the Air Force and I got out of the Air Force when I was 29. So I wasn't as engineering oriented. I never really had a pure play design engineering job because uh, the Air Force wanted pilots back then. 
like I said, you're kind of applied technologist when you fly. And uh, I also had a keen interest in business, uh, like uh, a lot of uh, American engineering graduates have, as well as a lot of Northwestern grads, which is sort of why I had founded Northwestern, because they have a really strong business school too. So I personally find um, more interest in the application of technology development to markets and how those markets can be exploited and grown uh, by using technology. Technology for technology's sake isn't as interesting as if you're solving um, you know, a real problem that has a business case. And the business case means you're either able to uh, you know, generate revenue uh, and make profit uh, and solve problems. So I like kind of, I like kind of both, if that makes any sense. No, no, it definitely does. Um, I kind of have a hard time choosing between the two myself. I'm still in college. But um, for those of the listeners who are like, who want to get into a career as a, a pilot or a career in engineering, what would you say to those uh, listeners? You know, well, they're different, right? You don't have to be an engineer to be a pilot. And um, even though the Air Force was driving scholarship recipients to major in engineering or a technical area, um, I would say that uh, being a pilot today um, is uh, a growth area, particularly for commercial pilots. It wasn't something I particularly wanted to do, um, you know, but there are a lot of uh, airline um, opportunities today uh, because the Vietnam War and uh, you know, older folks are retiring. There's mandatory retirement at the airlines. I believe it's at 65. So as a result, those, a lot of retirements are occurring, and there's a huge influx of opportunity at the airlines. So I did, I'd encourage them to definitely look at that um, if you can get with a major airline. I, do, I would point out from a military perspective, I think that uh, being a, a warfighter pilot is probably changing because there's a greater implementation today of drones. Now the drones are remotely controlled by pilots, but those pilots are typically sitting in an office somewhere, um, typically out in near you know Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada or or Creech out in Nevada, controlling those via satellite. So I don't know if about being a military. I mean I don't know. The Air Force will always be about military pilots, but I think that will that will change as we receive as we move into a world of more and more automation. So that's good for pilot. In terms of engineering, I'd encourage anybody to try to get a STEM type of degree. I, for the reasons that my dad, you know, in the Air Force encouraged me. It teaches you to think analytically. And, uh, you know, the technology changes so quickly. And, you know, if you study something, you may not actually use the, that. But even in, you know, high school and in, in early parts of college, you know, we study algebra, we study certain math. You don't really use that math necessarily as you get older, but it teaches you how to think. And I think that's really important. Learning how to think and analyze problems, break them down and think critically is I think a significant competitive advantage for a, per, for a young person, uh, you know, as opposed to memorizing, right? You can always, everyone carries, you know, Google around in their pocket. You can look right. up anything in seconds. You don't need to memorize anything. You need to be able to think. If you didn't get a degree in engineering, do you think you'd be able as you'd be successful today in your career? That's a great question. Um, I don't know. I um, I don't know. I I think I could have. I still had interest in. I'm, I've always been analytical, um, but I think if I had done, you know, marketing or economics, uh, I may have may have been in the same situation as today. Um, 
I just found when engineering is hard, right? It's really hard. Right. I found that when I went back to get an MBA, uh, I guess I got it 10 years ago or so. Um, I found it to be quite frankly, a heck of a lot easier than I remembered my undergrad. Um, mostly because of the workload and the rigor, right. That was required in engineering. So I think, um, that's an, an important consideration to, you know, if you're working harder and you're younger, later things might seem easier. But I think I would probably still be successful. You just figure out if you if you're driven, you'll you'll find a way. Right. If you if you the 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 saying goes, if there's a will, there's a way. Right. Right. Um, so, um, kind of like balancing um, your your workload and like everything you're going through. I heard you went on this uh, 500 mile bike ride in Iowa. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not quite 500, close to that. Yeah, I, you know, a few years ago, um, my son Matthew encouraged me to start riding a bike because I had, I had hurt myself uh, running. I kind of strained a tendon and I was a little, I was overweight, still need to lose weight. So I started riding and found out I really liked it. In fact, remembered how much I liked riding my bike when I was a kid. And I got involved with the local Plano Bicycling Association. And one night on a Wednesday night bike ride, uh, I recall um, riding next to this guy, he was about 10, 12, 15 of us, and he had a shirt on, a cycling shirt that said RAGBRAI, R-A-G-B-R-A-I. And I said, what's, the, what's, what's RAGBRAI? And he goes, oh, I'm from Iowa. And that's the registers, meaning the Des Moines registers, the registers annual great bike ride across Iowa. So as sort of a marketing gag, uh, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, uh, these two reporters for the Des Moines Register said they're going to ride their bikes across Iowa. Who would want to join them? And I guess like 300 people showed up the first day. Oh, wow. Well, now, 30-something years later, and don't quote me on that. I don't remember the exact period. Um, right. RAGBRAI is the largest organized uh, you know, non-competitive cycling uh, activity in the United States. There are probably 25,000 people riding across Iowa. You ride for 50 to 75 miles on a given day. Um, and then camp out at night. So it's a combination state fair um, and uh, sort of summer music festival uh, plus kind of a college fraternity party interrupted by a bike ride. That's sort of what it is. <laughs> I rode just about 500 miles across Iowa over seven or eight days. It was a really good time. The weather was great. That's and had crazy. A really good time. Yeah, it was cool. Fine. It's not a race. So some people went slow and unfortunately, the guys I was with, we were drilling it. So I, <laughs> I was tired. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Um, so basically like each city, they all come together for the bike ride or they're just having their own thing and there happens to be a bike ride going on. No, it's pretty organized. They, um, it changed. It's, it's an annual event, uh, for a week in July and the cities change every year. I should say small towns because we started in towns like Ottawa and went through towns like Denison and other towns I don't remember. So you went through seven or eight mm -hmm. towns a day. So typically you're riding down country roads and then every approximately 10 miles, you come across a farm town, uh, enter into their square and there's, you know, folks there, you know, selling, um, you know, water juice, um, you know, burgers, hot dogs, cake, pie, whatever. It's a fundraiser and it's an awareness for the small towns because, you know, family farms are changing in the United States. And then you'd have one larger town that would be the meet me town where folks who weren't riding that day, but were part of groups that um, were, you know, kind of like, again, kind of like the fraternity thing of these groups of people who ride every summer um, would meet there 
and then it'd be a meeting town at the end of the night where you'd spend the night. So we spent um, nights in as towns as you know small as Denison uh, and as large as Ames, Iowa, where I camped out on the campus of Iowa State. And then uh, a couple nights later, we camped out in Iowa City, just a couple miles down from the University of Iowa. So there were small towns and large towns uh, all along the way. So we went from uh, basically Omaha, roughly, to uh, Davenport. We actually wrapped up in Davenport on the Mississippi. So it runs in the Missouri to Mississippi River. But um, yeah, it was really fun. It was a really good time. Awesome. Yeah. So um, going back, after your uh, military experience, um, you became a manufacturing engineer and then you switched over to sales. Um, what, was it, am, I, am I right on that? Or? Close. I was a manufacturing manager. Um, coming out of the military, uh, you're highly prized recruit. You're mid to late 20s. You could have been in the military four to eight years. You're considered a junior military officer, and you're typically big companies are looking to tap into that talent because you typically have developed leadership skills at a younger age in the military. And corporations are looking to bring those people into their businesses to go through you know, executive or management training programs and then run parts of the business. And uh, at the time, actually, I had a uh, sales and marketing business on the side, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. So trying to decide, do I want to go and go to the airlines? Uh, do I want to work in corporate America? What do I want to do? And um, a junior military firm where I had known some people um, recruited me into a manufacturing company, a company called Newell Rubbermaid, which made uh, housewares and homewares and things like that um, and sold to the likes of Walmart, Kmart, uh, Target, et cetera. And um, it was an opportunity to come in on the ground floor, lowers like to be in an operation side of a big company, um, work with some guys I knew and um, also have some time later to continue to develop this business on the side and find out if it's something that I would like operations or if I would like sales because it wasn't a sales job. And I learned an absolute ton you know, um, eventually running a shift and then running the running three shifts at this production plant in the distribution center. And that knowledge that I picked up, I've used throughout my career. But I found that I wanted more independence and more freedom. And the junior military officer recruiting company had a tagline about using uh, sales to get into management. The difference with sales versus um, being in an operational role is it's easier to differentiate yourself in sales from your competitors, meaning the other employees, because you're posting a number of achievement every quarter, right? It's like sports. Did you score or did you, did you win? Did you lose? How many right. Or when you're, in a, when you're in an operations role, um, it's harder to really know. You have your annual review and things of that nature, but it's what hard to exactly, uh, what What is an operations role? Operations role is, you know, companies have different functions, right? They, uh, a company will typically source material um, and then assemble material to make something and then they'll basically ship it to a customer. And there's other functions such as marketing where they're defining the market they're going to sell to and trying to create demand. And then they have sales functions, which will operate on the demand or create demand and sell it. There's a finance function, which, which is a control function to, you know, monitor and manage um, costs in the business. Uh, and operations is typically the part that is involved in the production component. You're taking in material and you are um, developing something of value and delivering it. Now, so in like a physical the supply chain? Con- 
it's it's it supply chain is part of it the supply chain is the half that is on the gathering the material side and you know bringing in the material in order to build something of value and then once it's been made then taking it and perhaps moving it out to the customer if you're in a physical world in a, in a pure knowledge world part of operations would be the engineering or the software development part where you're developing something in this particular case i was more i guess the, to use the term today supply chain yeah that's what i was doing i was involved in managing the warehouse uh, and actually production floor we were actually bringing in raw material building things you know turning them into finished goods and then packing them and then storing them in a different part of the warehouse where they were picked up and shipped so it's operations is the operational part of the business, how you're getting things actually done, right? As opposed to sales it's finance. Yeah, it's right. the execution yeah. side, okay. exactly. Um, so, uh, and you, again, why did you, oh, so why do you think you did so well in sales? Do you think you've always been more of a salesman or do you think you just dove right into it or what allowed you to do so well in sales? Ah, it's a really good question. I never saw myself as a salesperson when I was younger, and I'm certainly not the most um, outgoing person. You know, I'm not, uh, a lot of people think salespeople are, you know, the um, life of the party or the, you know, the, the social chairman in the fraternity. That wasn't me. Um, I'm outgoing to some degree. I'm articulate. Um, but because of the educational background and the fact that I'm analytical, I can break problems down pretty quickly and I can oftentimes see solutions. But ultimately, what really separates, I think, um, people in sales is just how driven and motivated they are. I'm just, a, I've always been a motivated person. I like to achieve. My achievement need is very high. Whenever you take those tests, I have a very high achievement need. I, I, I enjoyed sports growing up and uh, it's similar. So I find military people and athletes typically are good backgrounds for sales because they're used to overcoming challenges playing hurt like i tell my kids right you gotta suck it up and play, play when you're hurt and just get the job done right and it was a way to differentiate yourself and and um you know work hard so i think the skills i had of you know being smart being articulate being social reasonably outgoing uh, i also happen to have um and i learned all this later uh, a high degree of empathy i'm able to sense at an emotional level, how people feel. Um, and I know how I feel at a given moment. So I have a relatively high EQ, emotional quotient. So I'm pretty good at being able to drive a situation um, pretty hard without driving it so hard as to overly annoy the customer. Um, so I think those are the innate skills I have. I, and I sense when there's an opportunity where someone's serious and I want to close a business, and I can get very focused on doing whatever it takes and i mean whatever it takes in order to close a deal so i can see opportunity i can sense how hard to push and i can close the deal pretty hard and i've got a pretty good business sense some of that's innate and some of it was developed would you say those qualities are need to be like almost requirements for any sort of job in the business realm as a whole no, no, you don't need to be, um, let's say have a high EQ if you're, let's say, a financial controller. You need to be able to, um, I think it helps, but to do the baseline individual function, I think that um, those are not necessarily required. Now, as one moves up in an organization and takes responsibility for more and more people, your people skills become increasingly important. I remember reading in a book years ago, um, um, 
how to have confidence and power in dealing with people. He said that when you're early in your career at a functional level, 80% of the job is knowledge based on that particular activity. Can I manage an Excel spreadsheet to understand costs? Can I, you know, create a simulation and can I estimate what pricing might be? Because you're not interfacing with a lot of people um, that you're responsible for. <clears throat> However, 20 years later in your career, when you're responsible for the entire finance department, 20% of your um, job requirement is the technical skill. When I say technical, I don't mean engineering, I mean the job knowledge, how do you operate a spreadsheet, how do you drive that simulation, 80% are people skills, because now you're trying to get people to work together. So, I, you know, so if you look at my career path, I started as an individual pilot and then became a flight leader and then an instructor where I was responsible for people. Then I went into, into um, manufacturing where I was responsible for a few number of people and then a lot of people. Then I pivoted to sales where I was just an individual contributor and then over years, I developed uh, sales leadership. Today, I run you know hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and have been responsible for a large direct and indirect workforce. So not everybody can do that, right? Some of it's self-development and in, in learning to change and grow. Um, and other people just either don't have the interest or don't have the skills to be able to shift from being an individual contributor and an expert in one area versus being able to be a leader. I wanted to do both. Remember that sales to management. I, one of the reasons I got into sales is I wanted to get ahead faster, get promoted, and have more responsibility. Yeah, you uh, you, you touched on uh, leadership a bit there. Um, uh, I guess the question I have is like, when do you become the leader? Is it when you're appointed to lead, say the uh, the manager managerial sales role you had, or is it far before? Well, I think it's far before, but the military taught us, the Air Force taught, there's two types of leaders, and I believe in this really strongly. There's the formal leader, that's the person on the top of the org chart, top of the pyramid, in the organization. That doesn't mean the CEO necessarily, that could just mean the, the sales leader, the marketing leader, the manufacturing leader, the person who's in formal authority over the department. Uh, and there also is the informal leader. Now, the informal leader, the person who's actually providing leadership in that individual moment or that particular topic. And that isn't always clear unless you're part of the group and you watch. So the example we used was, um, let's take a survival situation, right? So we're all on a boat and all of a sudden the boat has a problem, it capsizes and we all go out in um, little dinghies, right? Well, um, or we're out in nature and we get lost, right? And a group of us are wandering through the woods. Well, the former leader might be the captain of the airplane or the captain of the ship, but the informal leader might be the Boy Scout or the Navy SEAL who might have actually been a passenger um, on that airplane or ship, but has the necessary skills in the new situation to, um, you know, lead moving forward. So, you know, all businesses are looking for leaders. And I think when the opportunity uh, presents itself to show informal leadership, to suggest, to think differently, to um, ex expose your skills and say, I think we should do it this way. Now, some managers or some le formal leaders will recognize um, the need for that and create an environment or a culture within the group to allow that to happen. And others won't. And that's when, as a young person starting their career, you just have to look for um, those type of opportunities, um, that type of manager that might allow that. And it just depends on the situation. I'm really a, a big believer in context. There's times when I want to open up the conversation and let and get input from people to arrive at the best idea. And there's other times I want to bound it, close down and say, we're going in this direction, right? 
Um, so it just depends. You got to be able to read the situation. To be successful in business, it is it is important to have develop those people skills. You know, read how to win friends and influence people, and books like I've mentioned to develop those skills if you want to eventually have a leadership role. Because the people skills become really important. Because in business, nothing is done, you know, except through people. People are the most important. Um, asset of any organization. So you have to get, you really have to develop people skills. And frankly, it's not something, at least in my educational, my formal educational background that was really emphasized. It's things that I picked up later, um, you know, that made me realize are important. Um, so I think you kind of already, already touched on this, but we're also coming near the end of our show. But uh, for the last question, uh, would you say uh, leadership is more innate or it can be developed over time? It can be developed over time. You may have some of the attributes that might help, whether it's, um, you know, a, a greater penchant for being, uh, having the soft skills and the people skills, um, but it can absolutely be developed. That If it was only natural, you wouldn't have, you know, leadership academies and military academies and whatnot. So what you're trying to do is find people who have some of the innate capability, self-confidence, the articulation, um, the, um, you know, a little bit higher tendency for the emotional quotient, but then ultimately, you know, you can develop them. You just, some people may have to work a little harder than others, but it can definitely be developed. All right. Thank you, John. I really appreciate you coming on the show. You bet. Thank you. Appreciate it. Best everybody. Bye-bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening. Uh, remember to leave a rating, leave a review, and share it. Really appreciate it if you do this. Uh, there's a lot of great people out there that want to hear the content. Um, the next episode will be with Parker Primrose, and it'll be our first Student X episode. So looking forward to that one, and that will be coming out on Tuesday. All right, see you guys later.